reading from Exodus 1, 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied, multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, good morning to everyone. So, we got fewer people, so I don't know what the answer to this question is going to be. But anybody familiar with the show, The Book of Boba Fett? Boba Fett. Anybody? Got one person. I know there's a bunch of you online that, that are familiar. So, The Book of Boba Fett is a television show that takes place within the Star Wars universe. So, you know, if you, you, surely you know Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Han Solo. I'm thinking everybody knows that. This show was launched in December, and it was after a year-long wait, if you're a Star Wars fan, and they got, we got a preview of it a year ago with the, another show called The Mandalorian. And the Book of Boba Fett begins by dropping you, the audience, into the middle of this big, sprawling, epic Star Wars saga. This saga has, has now been in, in the making for 40 years, and, and, uh, and on the Star Wars timeline, I know I'm kind of geeking out here on the Star Wars a little bit, but... but Hang with me on the Star Wars timeline. A lot has happened before Boba Fett, and a lot will happen after Boba Fett. And one of the first things I found myself doing when I, when I started watching the show was like, where am I? I'm trying to figure out my bearings. Where I, am I in this big story? So, for example, I did some research and figured out that the show begins five years after the return of the Jedi. Okay? So I did that. I kind of have some sense of where I'm at on this timeline. The main character of the show is Boba Fett. Who's Boba Fett? Well, okay, if you remember Return of the, Return of the Jedi, there's this scene where, where Boba Fett gets swallowed by this, this sarlacc, this like scary creature that looks like uh, a pit in the desert, and it has all these sharp teeth that, used, that is used to digest. Sherry's shaking her head so she knows what I'm talking about, to digest its victims. <laughs> Which then begs the questions, well, how is Bobo Fett still alive? Like he was swallowed by the Sarlacc, and I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to give any spoilers, okay? So you're going to have to go home and watch it. Okay, so I had to figure out where I was in the Star Wars timeline, and I got to figure out who is Bobo Fett. But I also got to figure out, like, where am I? What's the setting of this? Okay, there's this whole Star Wars universe, and I learned it's on the, on the planet of Tatooine. And this is a desert planet. Uh, you might remember the first shot of, of the first Star Wars movie. There's these twin suns that are setting. Uh, and that's the, that's the planet of Tatooine. It's an important place because this is where Darth Vader's from. This is where Luke Skywalker's from. And, the, and it's inhabited by these strange creatures called like Jawas and Sand People. Okay? In other words, in order to appreciate and understand what was happening in the book of Boba Fett, I had to get my bearings. I had to orient myself. I had to figure out where am I in this big epic story of Star Wars. And I had to answer these questions, who, what, when, where. And one of the amazing things about Star Wars is that when George Lucas 
first made these, this first trilogy, he never set out to, to create this sprawling universe that's become into being these last 45 years. It built over time. Um, but the more familiar you get with this world, this what they call the Star Wars canon, you get familiar with the backstories and the characters and the settings and all these subtle illusions, the more interesting it becomes. Today we begin a sermon series not on the book of Boba Fett, but on the book of Exodus. And like, but like the book, the book of Boba Fett, the book of Exodus is within this big, sprawling, epic story of the Bible. Both these, these books, the book of Exodus and the book of Boba Fett, they're part of what we call canons, meaning that they're part of much bigger stories. They're one chapter among a big book. And like the, Boba Fett, like the book of Boba Fett, when we come to the book of Exodus, we find ourselves dropped into the middle of a story. And the first thing we, do, we need to do when we come to Exodus is, is, is figure out where are we? We need to get our bearings. We need to orient ourselves. Where are we in this story? What's come before the book of Exodus? What's going to come after? Who are these main characters? And what is this strange world we've been dropped into? One of the first classes I ever took at seminary uh, was called The Strange New World of the Bible. I love that title because I think it captures something true. There, especially the Old Testament, the world of the Bible can seem very strange. It can even seem like a galaxy far, far away, filled not with Jawas and sand people, but, but these creatures called Nephilim and these donkeys that speak. It's a world in which water both turns to blood and water miraculously divides. It's a world where somehow the blood of an animal smeared on a doorpost has the power to save. It's a world where bread falls from the sky and mountains tremble. It's a world where its creator takes up residence in a tent in the wilderness. The world of the Bible and the world of Exodus are strange worlds indeed. But within the strange world of the Bible and of Exodus, I want you to notice, takes place the single most important event in the Old Testament. The deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. We'll talk a little bit more about this later in the sermon, but, but there's the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Old Testament, and it contains 40 chapters. And then there is the story of the Exodus that takes place within the book of Exodus. And this is, of course, the event where God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, where they cross through the sea, where the waters part. Pharaoh's army chases after them. The waters come crashing down. They are saved in the most dramatic fashion from Pharaoh's army. And it would be hard to, to stress to you too much this morning how important this event is to the Old Testament. This story, this story, the Exodus story of God delivering God's people, the Israelites from slavery, is the central story of salvation in the Old Testament. Let me say that again. This is the central story of salvation in the Old Testament. It's the story that the, that the, the writers of the Bible, and not just the Old Testament, but also New Testament, they're going to just keep returning to again and again and again. Let me see if I can illustrate this with... Uh, uh, with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yes, we're moving from Bobo Fett to Beethoven. 
We're going to try to cover all our cultural bases today. Even if you know, I don't know a lot about Beethoven, but even if you don't know anything about Beethoven or anything about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you have heard Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy is that, that famous piece that begins with those famous notes. Can I get those notes from a singer? No, I can't do it. Thank you. I, I have like tried to do the notes, but then I like got too scared at the moment of, of trying to do it. Only like, actually only five notes. And actually a child can even, you know, with the right hand on the piano, begin to play that, that famous melody in Ode to Joy. And what this, what this melody does in Ode to Joy is, it, it, is it, it, it helps bring unity to this piece. You keep hearing it, it resurfaces again and again in Ode to Joy, these, this, this melody, these notes. And, and Ode to Joy might go off in a different direction. It gets quieter, it gets louder, it gets kind of weird at some points. It's held together by this melody, by these notes. The story of the Exodus, so the story of the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt, is like that melody, those notes that just keep coming back again and again in the story of the Bible. And once you have the melody, once you have the notes of the Exodus in your mind, you're going to start to see it everywhere. It's going to resurface in the Bible again and again. It's going to resurface in the history of Israel as they move forth as a nation. It's going to resurface in the Gospels. It's going to resurface in the New Testament letters. And most importantly, for us as followers of Jesus, these notes, this melody, this will resurface as the crescendo, as the, as the climax, as the ode to joy of the Bible, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's stick with Ode to Joy a little bit longer. Because Ode to Joy, if you know it, is part of a larger symphony. It's part of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I think it helps illustrate something else. Because we're, like I said, even if you don't know anything about Beethoven, you know Ode to Joy. And it's easy to forget that Ode to Joy sits, it does not sit in isolation. Ode to Joy is part of a whole symphony, the Ninth Symphony. And the Ninth Symphony has multiple movements, four of them actually. And the Ode to Joy does not come into the symphony until the very beginning of the fourth movement. And, and Ode to Joy is so famous, it's so sublime, it's so well-loved and memorable, that in many ways it's eclipsed the rest of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Like maybe even it's been divorced from it. As one person I read uh, who knows a lot more about music than I do said, when we detach Ode to Joy from the rest of the symphony, we miss that it comes at the end of an amazingly complex journey through the different movements, some of which are complex and confusing and strange. Okay? By the time you arrive at Ode to Joy in the fourth movement, you've moved through a lot of territory. Some of it's complex. Some of it may be a little strange, confusing. But then you arrive at Ode to Joy. And, it, you know, you can just... You can just play Ode to Joy on its own, and it's stunning, okay? You can play without moving through the other move movements, but something's different when you go through those movements. And when you finally come to Ode to Joy as the climax of the symphony, it's like, it's like fireworks start going off. But here, see, when those notes start in Ode to Joy, we're not quite to the climax yet. We, we, we begin to sense in that fourth movement, as we hear those notes, that we are moving to the climax, but we're not there yet. Because when does the, when does the ultimate climax happen? I don't know if that's an ultimate climax. 
When does that happen? When the choir comes in, which was, from my understanding, the first time in a symphony at that point that there was voices. This was totally new what Beethoven was doing. This was his last symphony, usually seen as his greatest symphony. But you have those notes, and it leads, and all of a sudden the choir bursts in, and it's like you're at the grand finale. Fireworks, think about like a fireworks show. Everywhere fireworks, fireworks are going off. That's the moment when you hit that choir. We, you have no doubt in your mind that you have reached the pinnacle, the climax of this symphony. And it really does feel like an explosion of joy. I've been listening to this uh, numerous times throughout the week. It's just so joyful. And anyone can appreciate what a stunning moment it is, even if you just play Ode to Joy. But if you've gone through those four movements, it is truly sublime when you reach that moment. Doctor, uh, there was, I was listening the other day, this, this female Bible professor who leads trips to Israel named Dr. Cindy Parker. And she, she was talking about on these trips to Israel, and she's teaching and doing background, talking about things. And she said, people always want to get to Jesus. And I would just add that that's understandable. She says, because they love Jesus. They want to know more about Jesus. And what, what Dr. Parker says is that she tells people, you can't really understand how explosive the New Testament Gospels are until you understand the Scripture they are connected to. So I, I, I'm a new, I admit, I'm a New Testament guy. I love the New Testament. I love, in particular, the Gospels. I love getting to Jesus, probably like many or most of you. But I think she's right. You and I are really only going to understand how explosive Jesus is if we have the backstory. Jesus is the ode to joy of the Bible. He is the climax. He's the crescendo. He is the point at which everything in our story is moving towards. He is when the fireworks start going off. And what happens is if we divorce Jesus from the rest of the Bible, if we divorce Jesus from his backstory, we're just not going to appreciate how explosive this moment is. But when I have a backstory... When I've traveled through the other movements of the Bible that lead to Jesus, and I'll admit some of those movements are strange, some of them are a bit long, some of them are maybe a bit boring, or maybe a little bit confusing, but if I've done the work to travel through those movements of the Bible, the Old Testament, man, when I arrive at the gospel, it is like the ode to joy. I get how stunning Jesus is. I get how stunning this moment is. Let me give you a few examples. Let me give you a few examples of how the book of Exodus is going to help us appreciate the fireworks that start to go off when we hit the gospel. In Matthew chapter 2, we read this line, Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, if you remember this story, this is early on in Jesus' life. He's been born. King Herod is going to give this order to kill all all the boys in Bethlehem. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they take flight to Egypt. So what's the big deal, right? One little line. Jesus goes to spend some time in Egypt as a kid. Like, what's the big deal? But what if I have the melody of Exodus in my mind? What if I have the notes of Exodus playing? I read this. Okay, Jesus has gone to Egypt, and Jesus is now coming out of Egypt. Hold on. Something big is about to happen. New Exodus, new liberation, okay? When I have the Exodus backstory, I think, I read that line, I think, hold on, something's about to happen. Or go to, the, go to the Gospel of John, and we read this line, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. More literally, 
the word became flesh and tabernacled, pitched a tent among us. Okay? What happens if I have the Exodus story in the back of my mind? What if I happen that, that melody is playing in my mind? I immediately think God is pitching a tent again. God's presence, just like in the Exodus, is coming to earth again. God is, in, in the words of, of Eugene Peterson in the message, God is moving into the neighborhood again. Okay? This time, not in a tent, but this time through the person of Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem at Passover and tells his disciples to make preparations to eat the Passover meal, what words, what word stuff should we start to think? Well, Passover, wait, that happened in the Exodus. We've got the notes, we've got the melody humming in our minds. What are we going to think? Passover equals liberation from slavery. And so when Jesus comes to that meal and, he, and it's a Passover meal, you and I, we need to think in our minds, liberation, freedom from slavery. Christopher Wright, uh, who has a commentary on Exodus, says it this way. The unmissable proclamation heard in the openings of all four Gospels is this. God is doing it again. The God of Abraham is keeping his promise. The God of Moses is confronting the world's pharaohs. The God of the Exodus is on the way to save his people. God is doing it again. Okay, when we hit the Gospels, all the signs are pointing to new Exodus. Jesus is called out of Egypt. Jesus is declared the Passover lamb by John the Baptist. Jesus passes through the waters of the Jordan at his baptism. Okay, just like the Israelites were going to pass through the waters. Jesus is then going to go out into the wilderness, just like the Israelites. Jesus is going to be tempted in the wilderness by the devil. The Israelites are going to be tempted in the, in the wilderness. But guess what? Where they fail, Jesus is going to succeed. And now Jesus, like the new Moses, is going to set his people free. So how is Jesus going to set his people free in the Gospels? Is he going to do it Exodus style? Okay, or is Jesus going to start like raining down plagues on the Roman army? Is God going to come in and, and strike down the firstborn of Caesar and all those who have Roman citizenship? Is that, how, is that how Jesus is going to free people from slavery? Not in this exodus. In this exodus, the only way you're going to appreciate this is if we have the backstory. In this exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In this exodus, a firstborn son will be killed. Guess whose firstborn son that will be? It will be God's. In the exodus, judgment will again rain down from heaven. But guess what? This time, judgment doesn't fall on God's enemies and crush them. It falls on Jesus. In this exodus, enslaving powers will again be defeated, but not a pharaoh, not in Egypt. In this, in this exodus, guess what? Enslaving powers will be, will be defeated. Sin, death, Satan. And in doing so, God will again free God's people. And again, in this exodus, just like the first exodus, God's presence is going to then move in and take up residence. But this time, it's not going to be in a tent. It's going to actually be through us, God's people. We become the temple. We become the tabernacle of God's presence. God, through the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in us. And guess what? We're getting led through the wilderness too. Not to Canaan but to new Jerusalem, the new creation of the milk honey. Does this, are you starting to see the way this melody that we first hear in Exodus is going to keep coming up in the Gospels? 
If you do, it's because you have the background knowledge of the Old Testament. It's because you've heard that melody in Exodus that you can recognize it as it resurfaces in the Gospels. If you don't hear that melody, that's okay. Because that's what we're doing. That's why we're doing this work that we're going to be doing in Exodus. It's only when we have the backstory that things start to fall into place. That we can see, ah, these are explosive fireworks that are going off. That we can, we can recognize we are at the climax of this great symphony or, or the epic story that we're part of. It's only when we have that background that we realize also that Jesus wasn't a backup plan. I think sometimes, and it's understandable, sometimes we, we read the Old Testament and then we get to New, New Testament and we think, man, they failed and Jesus succeeded. And we think, well, God had one plan, but then that didn't work, so then Jesus had to come in and clean things up. But that would not, that's not the story of the Bible, okay? When we get the background, we realize the New Testament doesn't replace the Old Testament. The New Testament fulfills it. Okay? Jesus is not, this is important to see, Jesus is not a backup plan. Jesus is the plan from the beginning. That's what Jesus says uh, himself on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Okay? Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. And when, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he, he, what, what he means is the whole Old Testament. The law is We'll talk about the Pentateuch, the first five, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets would be basically the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? So Jesus is saying, I fulfill the Old Testament. I don't replace the Old Testament. I fulfill it. Uh, another story. Think about Jesus at the, the road to Emmaus. He's in his resurrected body, and we read this in Luke's Gospel. So he's, remember, he's talking with these two people. We don't know who they are, but they're... they're or, they're walking on this road. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Did you hear that? Okay, Jesus is walking on this road to Emmaus, and he's saying, don't you understand that all these scriptures, and what is he talking about when he's saying scriptures? There's no New Testament. He's saying what we, the Old Testament. He's saying the whole Old Testament, it points to me. Jesus went back to Moses. He went back to the Exodus and he explains how that was all coming to me. And if Jesus says that, if Jesus says all of that's pointing to me, I think we as followers of Jesus better study that. We better know what's going on because we, again, we want to know how explosive it is when Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, when we go back to the Old Testament, we go back... Um, uh, as, as we're going to go back as Christians. We're going to go back as followers of Jesus the same way that Paul did and the other New Testament writers. We go back knowing the climax of the story. Again, going back to Bobo Fett, I know what's going to happen after. I know what's going to happen before. You're in a similar position in the Exodus. We know where this is going. We know where the climax is. We know what came before. But now we're going to go back to Exodus and read it knowing uh, what happens, knowing that this story is going to climax at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and many, so think about it. We, we're going to read Exodus knowing there's an empty tomb. Does that make sense? We, we're going to read Exodus knowing what happened at the climax. But we also need to recognize that this is a hard task. Okay? We both say that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, but it is not a direct line. Sometimes it's a really confusing line. Sometimes there's going to be parts where you're like, that doesn't seem to really connect with Jesus. For example, one of the instructions the uh, Israelites are going to be giving is not to cook a goat 
and it's mother's milk. And some of you might be thinking, but I love young goat cooked in mother's milk. Like, do I need to stop making that dish? Do we need to take that out of the Midway cookbook? Is that not okay? That's, that's not in the Midway cookbook. So it's a little strange, right? We're going to run into some strange things, and we're going we're gonna to recognize that, no, that's, that's, a little, that's, that's not a direct line to Jesus. There's going to be times that we're going to kind of struggle with some passages in Exodus. We're not going to exactly understand what is happening. And it's going to be sometimes hard to think, how does this relate to my life? How does this ancient Near Eastern culture, this strange new world of Exodus, what does this have to do with my life in Northeast Ohio in the 21st century? But here's, here's what Pete Inn says in his commentary on Exodus. He says, The book of Exodus is not waiting there for us to bring it into our world. Okay? The book of Exodus is not waiting for us to bring it into our world. That's how we kind of typically think. Rather, it is standing there defining what our world should look like and then inviting us to enter that world. You see the difference? We can come to the Bible and we can say, well, what does that Bible have to say to me? What does Exodus have to say with me? I got, I got bills to pay and I got coronavirus and I've got all these things that are going on in my life. What does the Bible have to say to me? And that's understandable, right? I, in many ways, I try to do that as a preacher. I try to bring that and, and apply it to our lives here. But we've got to forget, the, the Bible is asking different questions than we are. The Bible is thinking about different things than you are. And what the Bible wants you to do is rather than you take the Bible into your world, the Bible wants to take you into that world. The Bible wants to reorient the way you see the world. And you're being invited to enter into that world. So I, here's what I say. Like, this is going to feel like a strange world at times. Enter into that world, Okay. Go into that world and let that world become your story because this is your story. As people of followers of Jesus, this is our story. We were, we were brought into this story uh, at, when, when Jesus came. Okay. Hopefully, I've at least given you a little bit of bearings, better bearings of where we are in terms of Exodus and the big epic story of the Bible. This is a story that has a beginning and end. It begins with creation. It ends with new creation. It's a big story. For this last part of the the sermon, what I want to do is kind of get our bearings in the Old Testament and then in particular in the book of Exodus. So let's look at the first uh, few verses this week. And I want to just make, make a note. We're going to this is a little different than covering a book in the New Testament where the passages tend to be pretty small. This is 40 chapters. It's a long book. We, some weeks we're going to cover a lot of ground. Some weeks it'll be two, three chapters. We're not going to have that read up front every week. So when you see in your newsletter, okay, we're coming up on Exodus chapter 5 or whatever, 6, I would encourage you just read that before you get here because that way you're going to have some sense uh, when I'm preaching kind of where we're at. Okay, so, so the... Um, Book of Exodus opens with this line. There are the, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. And what, what we miss in our English translation here, that in, in the original language, the Hebrew, the Hebrew language, the first word there is actually and. Okay, so think about that. What, what happens when a, when a, it's not good English, we don't start books that way. But what, what does and make you think? It makes you think this is, it, this is a continuation, Right? This isn't just starting over. Again, think Bo- Book of Boba Fett. You guys are you're not going to be able to resist going to watch Book of Boba Fett. You think Boba Fett. There's a story before it, okay? Same thing with Exodus. There's a story before it, okay? And what is that story? 
Well, that story is, is called the, Pent- the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, so another way to think about this is when you hit Exodus, you've actually hit part two of a part five series. Okay, Genesis is before, and then we've got these other books that are coming after. If you are doing, um, if you're following along in Midway's 2022 Bible reading plan, you're in good shape because you, right now you're halfway through Genesis. Okay, so you're getting the backstory of the Pentateuch. You're, you're, you're getting part one of this part five, five-part series. And, and what you've done is you've read about uh, the creation of the world. You've read about the fall of creation. You, you've read about how things spiraled, starting with Adam and Eve, but then moving until they just got worse and worse until we reached the Tower of Babel. Um, so you've read that. So then you've also have some understanding, how does, how does God get this project back on track? God created a good world, God created a world in which he would dwell with his people, but that's not the case right now. How does God get that back on track? And we, it starts with a family. It starts with this line that you would have read in Genesis. He comes to Abraham and he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so how... Things have spiraled down in our, in our big story. They're not looking good. How does God get this back on track? He's going to do it through a family. Okay, he's going he's to make this family prolific. They're going to grow into a nation, and they, they will then occupy the land, the land of Canaan. And of course, as Christians, we would say, that's then where from those people the Savior of the world comes, Jesus. Okay? And this promise of nation and land is given, uh, if you think back, we covered some of this in our big story, the Bible series a couple years ago, but this, land, this promise is given to Abraham, and then it's given to his son Isaac, and then it's given to his son Jacob. And if you, in, in Genesis, there's all these points where it looks like this big plan of God's is about to be derailed. There's old age, there's barrenness of women, there's famine. Each time it looks like, okay, God's plan to save the world through this family is going to Headed dead end. But then always, of course, God comes through and makes it possible. The story moves forward. And so when we get to the book of Exodus, we get to this first line. We get to the names of the great-grandchildren of Abraham. Okay? We find out in book one of the Pentateuch uh, that they had, they've gone to Egypt. They've gone there. Joseph was sent there, and then the rest of the family came. And we, we read here in this first part of Exodus that they were 70. So 70-something, right? That's a, that's a pretty decent-sized family. But 70 doesn't sound like a nation, does it? Sounds like a big, you know, family. There's also this whole problem that they're in Egypt, right? They're, they're not supposed to be in Egypt. The land is in Canaan. The land is to the east, the northeast of there. So this is a problem. And then we, we have another problem because in, in verse 6, it says that that whole generation died, Joseph and all his brothers. So again, we, we're in trouble in our story. We got, doesn't look like a nation. They don't have their own land, and they're in Egypt. And, and we'll know as we keep going, they're in slavery in Egypt, okay? It again seems like God's plan is coming to an end. It's had a major roadblock. roadblock. But, but here's, keep reading in verse 7. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, so if we have Genesis in the back of our mind, this language of fruitfulness and filling should, should sound familiar because that was the first instruction to the humans. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
So again, despite all these obstacles, God, they're because, actually the word I think in Hebrew is swarmed. I mean, they are, the Israelites are just swarming. They're proliferating. They're being fruitful. And now the plan is going to move forward. Now it's starting to sound like this is a little bit more than just a large family. This is, sounds like we've got the beginnings of a nation. And that's exactly what this book of Exodus is about. How does this little family of Abraham become a nation? And by the end, we get to the Pentateuch, the, the end of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. We're going to be on the verge of entering that promised land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So, okay, so that's where we are. We're, okay, we're in this big, epic, sprawling story of the Bible, from creation to new creation. But then we've also got this Pentateuch, this Torah, these first five books. That's where we are there. But I want to end here with, in particular, the book of Exodus. So oftentimes we think about the book of Exodus as just about this dramatic rescue of the Israelites from slavery. And that is, like I said, a huge part of the story. There is no story in the Old Testament that is more important than the Israelites being rescued from, from slavery in Egypt. But here we go. Guess what? That's the first 15 chapters. There's 40 chapters in Exodus. What is the rest of the book about? Well, that's what we're, we've actually got quite a bit more that happens after that dramatic rescue. And Christopher Wright, he, I like how he puts it. He sees the book in three movements or three themes. Redemption, covenant, and presence. Redemption, covenant, and presence. Redemption is the first movement. It's the first theme of the book of Exodus. It's that famous story of how the Israelites are going to be freed from slavery. Anybody ever, uh, anybody sing that song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, as a kid? Nobody. <laughs> All right, we got one. Okay, it's, it's very, it's very, ca- it's not as catchy as Ode to Joy, not as famous as Ode to Joy, but it's very catchy. Uh, it says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, baby, let my people go. Huh, yeah, 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 yeah. That sound a little bit more familiar? No? Okay, I know I was at Camp Luz one time when we sang it, so I think it's got to be out. Thank you, Amber. There are even these hand motions. It's this song. It's catchy, and it's a song about liberation. It's about uh, freedom from the tyranny of, of Pharaoh. But here's what we often miss. Why should Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let God's people go? Why? Is it so they will be free? Kind of. But see, the Exodus is not just a story about the Israelites become what they're freed from. It's a story about what they're freed to. Let me say that again, okay? The Exodus is not just a story about what the people are freed from, but what they're freed to. And we're going to likely, throughout the series, come back to this idea again and again because I think it is so relevant to our contemporary culture in our day and age because it can be, let's think about this a couple different ways. It can be so easy to confuse the meaning of salvation, okay? God saves us from something, sin and death and evil, the devil. God saves us from, but God always saves us to something, okay? Our salvation is never an end. God always saves us to what? To be his people, to be part of community, to live, a, uh, to be transformed. There's all these things that we are lived. We have a new purpose. Salvation is never the end of the story. Neither is it with the Israelites. And I think it's easy to get confused about, well, we want to be free. We all love freedom in our culture, and what we think, I, this is, there's probably no country in the world that feels this way more than ours. We think true freedom is freedom from constraints. Freedom is, I don't have to answer to anybody. 
And we see this, this is absolutely rampant on the whole spectrum, the political spectrum. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do with my guns. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do with my body, okay? This is just permeates our culture. We are obsessed with freedom, okay? And that might be our culture's understanding of freedom. We're not gonna, we don't really have the power to shape that. But that's not our, that's not our understanding as Christians, okay? That's not our understanding of freedom as Christians, See, the Israelites, this is going to be so helpful for us, the Israelites are saved from serving one master, Pharaoh, so that they could serve another master, God. That's easy to miss, right? It's not so much that they were freed, it's that they were, their, their allegiance was transferred from Pharaoh to God. As one person put it, we're not freed to do our own thing, we're freed so we can do God's thing. And that, that's where, as we move out of that first movement of redemption, now we move into the second movement of Exodus chapters 20, 16 and 24, and it's about covenant. It's about, okay, what, is that, what does that relationship then look like between God and his people, this nation that he's creating? And God's going to lay out in the covenant uh, how, how, what the terms of this agreement between their relationship as they serve God as a new master. And one of the, one of the really beautiful things about this is this is a beautiful picture of God's grace. Okay, the Israelites are, are they're, not, they're not given a law and said, hey, if you guys follow this law, I'm going to get you out of slavery. Okay, if you just, if you can do all these things just right in Israel and in Egypt and slavery, then I'm going to free you. No, it's, it's the opposite. They've done nothing. God comes to them. He frees them. And then he gives them the law. And sometimes, I say that because sometimes uh, we talk about, or you help people talk about, well, the Old Testament was about the law and the New Testament is about grace. Not really. Because Exodus gives us a beautiful picture of God's grace. They have done nothing to deserve being freed from slavery. They have been freed and then they're given the law. Okay, so we got redemption. Then we're going to move to covenant. That's where we're going to be in the middle of our book. And then finally, we're going to be at presence, okay? God's presence is going to be a big deal in this. Uh, God is, is, we're going to spend some time uh, uh, talking about this tabernacle, this tent that, that God is going to have the, the Israelites build that he's going to dwell in. And so uh, the last thing that you're actually left with in the book of Exodus in the last part of the last chapter is God's presence coming into this and filling the tabernacle. Okay, God, God, is not, God has not just freed the people again for, for no reason. He wants to dwell with them. He's got a purpose. He's got a purpose for them, and he has a desire to dwell with them. And this is going to be, this is going to be important for us because this is going to be a theme, again, that's going to come up again and again in the Bible. God wants to dwell with God's people. I've said this before. I think it's worth repeating. The movement, this is so different, I think, than we're trained the movement of the Bible is not us going to heaven. It is heaven coming to us. Again and again, we think we're going to God's presence, but again and again, the movement in the Bible is God's presence come to us. And we see that in Revelation. Go back and read the last part of Revelation. What happens? A new Jerusalem comes to earth. All of a sudden, God's presence is with God's people again. Okay, You see how this is one big epic story? In the garden, God was with God's people. Okay? How do we get back to that point in Revelation where God is again with God's people? Well, it's going to take a huge epic story to get us there. Uh, all right. <laughs> I've thrown a lot at you. Are you still with me? 
Um, we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered Boba Fett. We've covered Beethoven. We've covered the Bible. But my hope is, is at least you have your bearings just a little bit more. You kind of have a little sense of like, okay, where I'm diving into this world of Exodus and kind of what's behind me, what's ahead of me. Um, and I'm hoping that as followers of Jesus, you're going to realize, man, Exodus matters to us. We need Exodus. And hopefully, I, I hope, this is an incredible story. I mean, I don't have to, it's not a hard sell, because especially the first part, it's an incredible story. I hope I've whet your appetite for this story. So, so buckle your seatbelts. The book of Exodus, Exodus, here we go.